20 years ago uh, this month, uh, we started Rockbrook Church in the Raymore Park Shelter House. And I remember it rained the early service, and uh, we actually had set the sound system up, and we had wires running through puddles. Wonder we didn't kill us all, but uh, we didn't. And so 20 years later, here we are. So the first weekend in June, uh, we're going to celebrate our 20th birthday. On Friday night, June 2nd, we're going to have a, a celebration with our dream team. And then in each of our weekend services, uh, June 4th, 3rd and June 4th, Saturday and Sunday night, or Sundays, we're going to uh, have a special birthday message, a special birthday service. Uh, our, our birthday is not going to focus on the past 20 years. You're not going to come and see a bunch of pictures of me with hair. Uh, we're going to focus on the next 20 years, the future of Rockbrook Church. And we're going, to have, we're going to have an ice cream truck between the buildings and uh, free ice cream for everybody that weekend. We're going to do baptisms outside. We're doing baptisms this weekend, but if you'd like to get baptized at our birthday party, you can sign up on the communication card. But you're going to want to be here for that service and especially for that message. Uh, to celebrate our birthday, uh, we're taking a special birthday offering uh, that we're going to give to another church. Uh, we're going to give it to the Gangree Church in Kathmandu, Nepal. And our goal is to uh, help them pay off their $35,000 mortgage. Uh, they built a new building, and they're paying 18% interest on this $35,000. And frankly, the, at that high interest rate, they're never going to be able to pay it off. And we think they've got better uses for their money than that. And we have better uses for our money than that. So we're going to help them pay it off. Uh, I've preached twice in the Gangri Church. I preached a year ago, March, in their uh, old rented building. And then I preached this March in their new building. And it's really a nice building. It's a very high-quality structure by Nepal standards. Uh, the inside of the building is very uh, comfortable. Uh, they have a nice children's uh, area in the downstairs as well. And uh, we've got a picture of their worship team here. And uh, the church, it's a multi-generational church. Uh, they have senior citizens. They have middle-aged families. They've got a bunch of college-age kids, a bunch of little kids. It's a vibrant and an alive church. And I've got a little worship a video, uh, just a little snippet of their worship here for you. That song will stick with you. I mean, I don't I have no idea what the words are, but that song will stick with you. You'll be droning that on the way home in the car, I guarantee you. It's pretty cool. But uh, the, the Gangri Church, they're an influential church. They're serious about reaching the unreached people groups of Nepal, because that's what they were just uh, about four decades ago. And they've invited me to come back and do training for 30 Tibetan pastors that they've invited to the church in November. And so if you're interested in helping us help that church, uh, you can give any time between now and June 4th and uh, just designate your offering Nepal Church. Uh, we're not going to do any fundraising, no garage sales, no car washes, no projects like that. We're just going to pray, ask God what he'd have us give, and then give it. God's a generous God. He's a miracle-working God, and we're just going to give him the glory for what he does. So uh, we hope you'll help with that, or at least pray about it, see what God wants you to do. So uh, today we're in part six 
of our series on seeing Jesus. Uh, theme verse is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. Read this out loud with me. You'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. Uh, today we are seeing Jesus as the lion and the lamb. And those two concepts, the lion and the lamb, seem contradictory. I mean, how can Jesus be a lion and a lamb and be the same person? And probably the clearest explanation of this lion and lamb imagery of Christ is found in Revelation chapter 5. So on your notes, on the screen, Revelation 5.1. Then I, this is John the apostle who's uh, seeing this and writing this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with a writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What's in the scroll and the seven seals? Well, the scroll contains the plan of God to do away with sin once and for all. The scroll is the plan to bring about a permanent reign of Jesus Christ in the new heaven and the new earth with those of us who believe in him. Now, whether or not that plan can happen depends upon whether or not someone can break the seals and unroll the scroll to reveal, to activate the plan of God. That's why this book is called the book of Revelation, because it reveals the outworking of God's plan. But there's a dilemma in heaven that we find in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And you may have noticed that in church we sing a lot of worthy songs. Jesus, you are worthy. Your name is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And we sing all of these songs because the question has been asked, who is worthy to open up God's plan for his people? Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Why not? Because no one was worthy. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John is weeping because God's plan is not going to be fulfilled. John, the disciple, saw Jesus come, crucified, resurrected, saw him ascend up to heaven. John was there when the church was started in Acts 2. John saw the spread of the church through the ministry of Peter and Paul. John saw the other disciples martyred for the cause of Christ. John himself was arrested for preaching the gospel and exiled to the island of Patmos. John is the longest living of the disciples. He's seen the ministry of Christ and the birth of the church. It cost him, it cost Christ, it cost the other disciples their lives. And now it looks like it's all been for nothing. John's whole life, the death of Christ, and the death of his friends has all been a big waste of time. Because no one is worthy to open the scroll and unleash the final plan of God to put an end to sin and death and hell and the devil. That's the dilemma of heaven that made John weep. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. I mean, the story can't get any more exciting than it is right here. I mean, the entire plan of God from eternity past to eternity future hinges on this moment right here. Because if no one can be found who's worthy to open this scroll, then everything that's happened up to this point has accomplished nothing. The universe, the world, humankind, you and me are still broken and death and sin and the devil have won. In order for the great plan of God, for the universe, for mankind, for you and me to work, someone has got to open this scroll and it must be someone who is worthy who does it. And that's why John is weeping, because no one can be found who can open the scroll. But suddenly, John sees. There's a whole lot of seeing that goes on here. John sees the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has triumphed. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed over sin and death and hell. Therefore, he alone is worthy to open the scroll. He alone can bring about the death of death and can give us the eternal life that we've longed for forever. Jesus Christ is the only one who can usher in the plans of God for eternity. So let's just stop for a moment here in Revelation and let's go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis 49. Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means, beginnings. Just as Revelation is a book of endings. Everything starts in Genesis and everything finds its fulfillment in Revelation. And if you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, you'll see that these two books indeed are the bookends of Scripture. Things that begin in Genesis find their fulfillment in Revelation. It's all one grand plan of God from beginning to end. And in the book of Genesis, we have the great patriarch of the faith, Abraham. God called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and brought him to the land of Israel. And God promised Abraham a land, the land of Israel, and a people, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. But if you're going to have people, if you're going to have a nation, then you've got to have descendants, and so there had to be a son. So we have Isaac. Abraham's and Sarah's son who was miraculously born in their old age. So Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob steals Esau's blessing and then runs off and gets married and has 12 kids. So these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Jacob that make up the nation of Israel. So somewhere on the side of your notes, write down Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 12 tribes. In Genesis 40, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 12 tribes. In Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his 12 sons, and he prophetically describes the future for each of the 12 tribes that's going to come from these 12 sons. And one of the sons of Jacob is the fourth son, Judah. And when we read the blessing that was pronounced on Judah, we realize that, yes, it's a blessing on the son, Judah, standing right in front of Jacob, but it's also a blessing on a descendant of Judah who will come sometime in the future. And let's look at this prophetic blessing, Genesis 49, 8. 
says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And actually, the name Judah means praise. So when Revelation says that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, it means Jesus is the lion of the tribe of praise. The name Judah, the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah, it's all about praise and worship. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? You do not want to wake up a sleeping lion. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, to whom it belongs, shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. And you start to feel the end time vision of Jesus Christ developing here. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. He calls Judah a young lion, a lion cub. But this prophecy predicts a significant role for Judah in the future. In fact, when the 12 tribes of Israel entered the promised land, Judah got the portion of land that included the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where the temple would be built. Jerusalem, from where the kings would rule. And when Jesus comes on the scene hundreds of years later, in his genealogies in both Matthew and Luke, he is identified as a descendant of the tribe of Judah. On Palm Sunday, we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, and he establishes the new covenant with the wine and the bread of the Lord's Supper. From Judah, who's a lion cub, is going to come the lion, Jesus. And this lion will roar out of the tomb by the mighty power of God and will hold the scepter of all authority and power and all the nations will come and worship him. He will be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Jesus. So the elder in Revelation said, Don't weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't weep, see. You remember a few weeks ago, Mary Magdalene struggled to see the resurrected Jesus through her tears. The elder says, don't weep, see. Scripture calls us to see what is often obscured from our vision, but is truly right in front of us. Jesus, the triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah. Over and over again, the Bible says, behold, look, see. Why? Because we don't do that. We don't stop to look, behold, and see, even though it's right in front of us. So in Revelation chapter 5, John turns to look at this lion, and, and we can't wait to see the display of this conquering power that John is going to see, this triumphant lion whose roar defeated sin and death and hell. Verse 6, Then I saw... A lamb. The elder said, look at the lion. John turns and looks and he sees a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. And right now you're thinking, pastor, this is exactly why I don't read Revelation. 
because I was tracking with you on this lion thing. But all of a sudden, it's a lion that looks like a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits, and that's creepy. I don't get it. I'm checking out. Okay? Don't check out. Check in. It's not that complicated. In God's economy, a horn always means power and might. And how many horns does this lamb have? Seven. In Scripture, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. So this lamb has complete and perfect power. Okay? Next, in God's economy, eyes are the symbol for wisdom and understanding. Seven eyes means the lamb has complete, perfect wisdom and understanding. He has the sevenfold spirit upon him, which is the complete and perfect spirit of God. So John sees this triumphant lion who looks like a slain lamb who has complete and perfect power and authority, complete and perfect wisdom and understanding, complete and perfect spirit of God. John is now seeing a complete vision of Jesus Christ. Stop, look, behold, see Jesus and who he is, Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now we're going to go back to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and look at this lamb thing. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, had uh, been sold into slavery by his brothers. And he wound up in Egypt. He's a slave to a man named Potiphar. He winds up in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And then he's miraculously elevated by Pharaoh to be the second in command in Egypt. This is Judah's younger brother, Joseph. And there's a famine in the land of Israel. And Joseph's brothers, the 12 tribes, uh, all come to him and they need help. And so they all move down into Egypt to escape this famine. 400 years later, they've got a pharaoh who comes to power who doesn't remember Joseph, and he has enslaved the nation of Israel. So God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and plead for the release of the Jews so they can return back to the promised land of Israel. Pharaoh refused. So God sent the ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. And there's frogs and flies and lice and boils and blood and darkness and hail and locusts. It's a mess and Pharaoh refuses to release the Jews. Until finally the last plague. God, God warned Moses that the death angel was going to pass over Egypt and kill every firstborn son in the land, even the firstborn of all the cattle, even the firstborn of Pharaoh. But if the Jews would sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and on their lintels, then the death angel would see the blood and he would pass over that household and their firstborn would be saved. And that's exactly what happened. And so God told Moses that from that day forward, the nation of Israel should observe the Passover with a sacrificed lamb to commemorate that day. So in John's gospel, 
John is written by the same guy who wrote Revelation, wrote his gospel. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he is immediately identified by John the Baptist, another John. But John the Baptist immediately identifies Jesus not as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the triumphant one. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, behold, look, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the announcement that was made was not, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, but here comes the complete and perfect Lamb of God who will once and for all take away our sins. So at Passover, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, just like it was predicted clear back in Genesis 49. And on that final night, he breaks bread, lifts up a cup of wine, and says, this is the new agreement with God. What's the new agreement? Day after day, sin after sin, sacrifice after sacrifice, lamb after lamb, that is ending with the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And everything that's said about him in Revelation 5, about him being the perfect, complete, triumphant Lion of Judah, is predicated upon him being the perfect, complete Lamb. So how do the people in heaven respond? Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Who here knows that you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? You were bought, you were redeemed from sin, death, hell, and the power of darkness, not with silver and gold, but the currency that brought you back to God was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And these people are from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every culture represented, every musical style, every language. That's why it's important that we reach every unreached people group. It is necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan. Folks, if we want to get out of here and get to the new heaven and the new earth that God has promised us, we have got to reach the unreached people groups. It's our only way out of here. It's the only way to fulfill God's plan. That's why a church like Rockbrook, right here in the center of America, needs to care about a church in Kathmandu, Nepal. Because we've got to reach the unreached people groups in Nepal. Because God wants those people groups there to worship him in heaven forever. So you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard, and looking, seeing, hearing, beholding, that needs to be done in life. You've got to put down your phone and look at what God is doing in the world. If you're a businessman, you've got to get your head up out of your finances, out of your 401k, and you've got to look at what God is doing in the world. If you're a mom, you've got to look up above your children and you've got to see what God is doing in the world because if you don't look, you have no vision, and without vision, people perish. The Bible says, look, behold, see, observe what God is doing. 
I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, there's 100 million angels that had one purpose, to praise and worship Jesus Christ. They don't understand what's happening here on earth to us. They don't get why Jesus would leave heaven and come die for us. All they know is that Jesus was sitting on the throne in heaven and they were worshiping him and one day he left and they were hushed. Where'd he go? He went to die for those stiff-necked, rebellious humans down on earth. What? Why would he do that? They disobey his commands. They do whatever they want to do. They all think they're smarter than him and yet he's going to go and die to rescue the very ones who will kill him. And these angels, they've never sinned. They, they know one thing, one thing only. Their entire existence, they have been looking at perfection personified and it has lit them up in worship. And they're not looking at their watch. They're not checking their phone. They're not gawking around at their neighbor. They, they are full throttle, full voice, focused on worshiping the lion and the lamb. The lion, who is the lamb, slain before the foundation of the world. And it is the loudest roar you could imagine. With a loud voice, they sang. Worship is never about the song. I don't care if it's your favorite song or the new one you've just heard. Worship is never about the words, the music, the style. It's never about the music. Worship has always been about Christ, the one who is worthy of worship. And when he is looked at, beheld, seen, observed for who he truly is, perfect, complete power and authority, perfect, complete wisdom and understanding, perfect, complete spirit of God, the lion and the lamb, all of that wrapped up in, in, in the sacrificial lamb with scars on his hands and feet, a wound in his side, stripes on his back, because in the greatest act of love, he laid down his life for you. And when you see him like that, songs erupt, worship breaks out, praise is given, because he's the lion of praise. And so we don't come in here and sing a couple of songs to warm up for the message. And we don't sing a couple of songs to get ready for the offering. And maybe I come in here and I don't feel very triumphant in my life, but I know there is one who has triumphed on my behalf and I fix my eyes on him. And maybe I don't feel worthy before God, but we can lift our eyes to the one who is worthy, to the one who offers us grace and forgiveness and redemption freely. Not because we deserve it, but because he freely gives it. And when Jesus is in view, children sing. Women sing, grown men sing, angels sing. One song, one voice, one praise to the lion and the lamb. And when worship isn't happening like that, it's not because of our personality type or worship style or song choice. It's because of our ability or inability to see Jesus. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped the Lion and the Lamb. Now what does it mean to you that Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb? Three things. You've got no fill-ins on your notes. You'll just have to jog these down somewhere. It means the system is over and the Savior has arrived. System's over, Savior's arrived. There's no more working it out with God. It has all been worked out for you by the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so year after year, system after system, sacrifice after sacrifice, that's all over. It's not about a system. It's about a Savior. Jesus and who he is, Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. You are not going to get to where you want to be with God through your own works and effort and goodness. You are not going to get to where you want to be with God through a religious system. You are going to get to where you want to be with God by embracing the lion and the lamb. Second thing it means you better not mess with Jesus. I mean, we like him as the lamb, all cuddly and full of grace and mercy. But that's not all he is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you saw him as he really is, you would fall on your face before him and you would shake and quiver and not even peek or flinch because of the majesty of the divinity in your midst. Don't mess with the lion. His roar created this cosmos that we'll never fully comprehend. His roar shakes all of hell. At the name of Jesus, the demons tremble. Man full of evil spirits saw Jesus coming and a demon inside of him cried out, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. What have you come to do to us? And hell may not be interested in your name, but hell knows Jesus' name. Devil knows his name, the demons know his name, the darkness knows his name, every evil power knows Jesus' name, and none of us have him on a leash. None of us have this lion in a cage that we can pull out on special occasions. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy asked about Aslan the lion, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, he's a lion! But he's good, and he's king. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't care who you are, your knee will bow, your tongue will confess. Because he's the lion, and he's the lamb. And we love the grace, and and we should, but don't forget that he opens his mouth and peels the bark off of trees. His roar will raise the dead. It will pass judgment on hell. And it will free us into that eternal life that he's offered us. Don't mess with Jesus. Number three, it means you can call on Jesus' name. We can call upon the power and authority and wisdom and strength of the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And I don't know what you came in here today with. I don't know what problem, hurt, wound, sin, fear, need, sickness, debt, deficiency. I I don't know what you came here with today. But you can call upon the name of Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ. We thank you. The system is over and we have a Savior. So God, help us not to mess with Jesus. To not just look at the part of him that we like, the soft, cuddly lamb, but to also know that he has complete and perfect power and authority over us. He has complete and perfect wisdom and understanding about us. And as the complete and perfect spirit of God, he has chosen to dwell within us. And so God today, We call upon his name. We thank you for the salvation, for the freedom, for the grace, for the hope that we find in him. And we worship him because he is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.